Computer, initialize Holosuite. In his nightmares, he can see them. In his mind, he can hear them. Look, Judas. In his soul, he can feel them. I just received report from Deep Space Five. Long-range sensors have picked up. Yes, I know. The Borg set a course for Earth. Maximum warp. Now, in Earth's darkest hour, he must fight them again. Captain, Earth. Life signs? Population approximately nine billion. All Borg. How? Time travel. They went back and assimilated Earth. Changed history. I must follow them back. Repair whatever damage they've done. But this time, they must travel to the past. April 4th, 2063. To save our future. You're all astronauts on some kind of Star Trek. They invade our space. And we fall back. They assimilate entire worlds. And we fall back. Not again. The line must be drawn here. It looks like the control deck's 26 up to 11. Mr. Data and I are returning to the ship. Don't let them touch you! Uh. Captain! Data! We must activate the auto-destruct sequence. You want to destroy the ship by the way, you coward. If you were any other man, I would kill you where you stand. Let's rock and roll! Destroy them. Watch. Your future's end. We've lost shields and our weapons are gone. Resistance is futile. Perhaps today is a good day to die. John, look, blow up the damn ship! No! We are not going to lose the Enterprise. Not to the board, not while I'm in command. Star Trek. First contact. Welcome to Beyond Farpoint, a podcast in which we chat about everything Star Trek The Next Generation. We are co-hosts Baz Green and Jeff Owen. Hi Jeff, how are you? I'm doing pretty good today, thanks uh, Baz. How are you doing? Yeah, good. As we discussed on our last podcast, we still haven't actually met yet, have we? Um, we've been doing all these over Zoom, even though we only live almost down the road from each other. But uh, we should be changing it up this week, shouldn't we? We should be catching up for the first time in person, not to record a podcast, but just to kind of uh, catch up, won't we? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. We're, it's the first time we're going to see each other in three dimensions. Um, and, <laughs> Absolutely. And it's not just us as well. Hopefully, all no. things being equal, we'll get to meet Kyle and Katie from her first trek and Blast Shield as well. Absolutely. It should be a, a good uh, Hollow Suite, Self Wells podcast in uh, Meetup there, which would be great. It'd be fun. Good, yeah. good to actually meet you guys in person. So that'd be a lot of fun. So I think time, the time has sort of gone out. So obviously, we'll have met up. But uh, yeah, it should be good. Uh, something else I'm looking forward to this month as well is I'm looking forward to attending my first Comic Con since COVID. 
Uh, that's oh, a, fab. Where are you going? Uh, Bath. Um, there's a comic convention. It's only a small event, uh, Bath Comic Con, uh, coming up at the end of September. That's We record these podcasts, obviously, a few weeks before they get released. So by that point, I'll have come back and uh, hopefully enjoyed my first um, post-COVID uh, Comic Con. That'd be great. Yeah, I haven't been to one in a couple of years now. I'm kind of uh, keeping an eye out, um, maybe next year. Though annoyingly, the uh, South Wales main comic con the one 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 not far from us actually i've actually booked a holiday next year so oh, hasn't no. worked out but maybe maybe another one uh well fingers crossed you'll be able to get uh, to another one there's um there's a couple that i know of because my partner actually trades at comic cons uh so we're hoping to get some tables coming up there's there's a good one in swansea that we go to there's um, well, obviously the one in Cardiff doesn't look like it's happening now, but there's this new one coming out in Newport, so we're um, we're excited about the uh, we're excited about 2022. Yes, yes, everyone's looking forward, aren't they? Which, which yeah. is great. Cool. Of course, today we are looking back, and I am very excited to talk about our eighth episode of Beyond Farpoint because we're discussing our first next gen movie. Yeah, which is fantastic. Eighth episode of Beyond Farpoint, eighth movie. Absolutely, yeah. So we we ran a short poll on Twitter, and First Contact was a clear winner. I think we had more votes for First Contact than any other movie in terms of which one we should discuss first. Though there was no love for Insurrection, poor Insurrection. Yeah, Geraldine, my partner, loves Insurrection, um, so uh, I might see if she's interested in coming on when we talk about that one. But uh... absolutely, yeah. It's it's. I think Insurrection is probably the most next gen. Yes, style movie. I think it's it, one that feels most like an episode. The series, I, it, it, yeah, and and the downside to that is it does feel more like a big TV episode as opposed to a film. Whereas First Contact is very much a movie, movie, isn't it? But uh, yeah, yeah I, I love them all, and um, yeah, I think what we'll, we'll probably do one film a year, won't we? We won't race through them. There's lots of episodes to talk about as well, but we wanted to get on and at least do uh, one movie this year. So uh, yeah. First Contact, it is. And I don't know about you, but it is my personal favourite of not just the Next Generation movies, but all of them. Amazing. Well, I was going to ask, where, so where does it rank on Star Trek movies? Is this is the top movie for you in Star Trek? It is my favourite Star Trek movie. Not just my favourite Next Generation movie. It is my favourite Star Trek movie. Fab, yeah. I think it's definitely up there with Rafa Khan, Undiscovered Country for me. It's, it's the first one that I saw three times at the cinema. When I was 15, when the movie came out, and... Up to that point, when I've been listening, I'd only seen a film once, but First Contact was so good, I went back again and again, <laughs> and I just love this movie. There's, there's, it's such a great movie, and uh, yeah, there's so much to enjoy in this one. I think it's certainly the most cinematic mm. of all the next-gen movies, certainly. Yeah, well, I was I was quite lucky as well, because when it was released, I was a member of a Star Trek club called Kronos One that were based in Cardiff, and we got to hold a local premiere of the movie so we actually had the i'm trying to think if it was the odeon uh cinema on queen street in cardiff but we managed to have that we got some special guests to come along as well chat uh, uh celebrities and then we had a big uh, party afterwards so we we had the first showing of star trek first contact officially in um, in wales oh amazing that's great yeah i was a bit, a bit younger maybe 15 but yeah sounds <laughs> great so before we talk about the movie itself, then, let's talk a bit wider as well. So what are your thoughts on the Enterprise-E and where does it rank against Enterprise-D and the other ships? 
it is gorgeous, isn't it? it there's no, it is. There's no other word for it. It's, um, it was completely different to the Enterprise D um, in so many ways, but you could see the development of that line of starships mm. carrying on. Obviously, all the way from well, let's let's say going back to Jonathan Archer's because that still has the lines of the Enterprise mm. through Kirk's era, the refit. Hopefully, the new one we're going to be seeing in Strange New Worlds, uh, which I think is still before Kirk. The refit, yeah. the A, the B and C, which we saw in Generations and Yesterday's Enterprise. And then, of course, we've got the um, uh, Sovereign. I forgot the <laughs> class of ship then, the uh, Sovereign class ship that yes. we saw in Enterprise, uh, in um, First Contact. Yes, no. I, I love a sovereign class starship. It's my favourite Starfleet vessel in all Star Trek. I think what I really like about it is a really lovely fusion, as you said, of the TNG era and the original movie era as well. It feels yeah. mu very much in keeping with the kind of the Constitution refit class you saw in the Kirk movies, but still feeling a next gen ship as well. Mm. I think it's obviously a more sleek as well, and not just that, but I think they've designed it more towards possibly be in the frontline ship. I mean, obviously the Enterprise D was the flagship during Next Generation, but they've designed this more in need of combat because it doesn't look like you've got families on board the ship yeah. anymore. The bridge is very much... What's the word I'm looking? Very practical is the word. There's no, there's no mm. kind of luxury about it, is there? It's, it's very much... It does feel like a military ship. It, again, it feels like the Kirk movie era... Yeah. bridges you saw before as well it doesn't quite have that uh I, I love the enterprise d bridge but it does feel like a hotel lounge at some point doesn't it and i think this is very much stripped back and very pragmatic and to the point and i don't think it has that kind of that sleek style and luxury that you saw in the enterprise d yeah it, it does kind of feel like um well i know some people as well they've set up their living rooms to look like the enterprise d bridge and I don't think you'd get many uh, fans uh, making up their living rooms to look like the Enterprise E-Bridge. Um, <laughs> and if I'm right as well, there's no carpet. Isn't there? Oh, okay. I didn't actually notice that when I rewatched it, but uh, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, again, all of Enterprise D looked like a... We talked about this in our, our first episode. The Enterprise D looked like a great ship to live on and in with the families and it, it luxury and the carpets and the holodecks and everything else, whereas this one is uh, very sleek straightforward and very very practical so it, i think probably summed up i think back in our prime episode now but you said you you love the outside of the enterprise e with the inside of the enterprise d i think that's probably the best of all isn't yeah. it really because it is it's very much uh the best of both worlds maybe it is yes absolutely yeah <laughs> sorry <laughs> we've got to throw it in there and it's for it's a sequel to the best of both worlds as well so we absolutely want on, mm. on the right theme there but yeah i think the outside is just absolutely stunning it's beautiful I just wish we had more of it. I'd, I'd wish the Enterprise E had been there in the Dominion War. We'd seen certain sovereign-class warships in battle as well. That would have been great in DS9. But yeah, well, I've been just seeing if, if the Enterprise E pops up in Picard. Obviously, now we're seeing where the trailers are going with a slightly different angle. So um, I, I don't know, but um, maybe in the future. I'd love to see the Enterprise E at least once more, if possible. But uh what about the uniforms then? So they obviously they redesigned the uniforms away from the kind of the colourful ones of the TNG, DS9 Voyager era. Um, they obviously wanted to try and change the uniforms for Star Trek Generations, and we'll get on to what happened there mm. when we do our Generations podcast, but obviously it didn't quite go according to plan. But when First Contact came out, they obviously had a big drive, they had a new ship, 
They wanted to uh, make things look new and updated. So the padded shoulders came in. Well, the um, the sort of grey, more... Military almost. How can you say it? Sort of like more... Th- well, yeah, very much military. And they looked much harsher fabric on the shoulders. And uh, yeah, I, I uh, it, it suited the new era. And obviously that uniform then went on to be in Deep Space Nine. Which I think worked. I think it really worked in DS9 because it reflected the dark nature of the show, the build up to the Dominion War. It's a. Uh, I, I think they work in this movie because it's darker. I think when you get to something lighter like Insurrection, I kind of almost miss the colour of the of the old uniforms. And I like chronologically mm. that the lower decks uniforms have kind of gone back to that kind of brighter aesthetic as well. But uh, they work for First Contact because First Contact is a darker movie. But I, I do miss the colour as well. I miss the colour of the TNG era uniforms. Yeah, me too. At least Voyager mm. carried on the tradition of keeping the colourful uniforms. And obviously, by the time Enterprise came along, you had the the boiler suits with the coloured the coloured piping over the boiler suits, which uh, I, I liked as well. What was I going to say as well? You said mm. about lower decks. It's interesting as well that aboard the Titan. And you see what Mariner's life was like before mm. when she served on Deep Space Nine and previous vessels, that they still very much honoured that grey-shouldered uniform that they introduced in Star Trek First Contact. I'm kind of get the sense with Lower Decks that these are new uniforms. They've just been phased in. So that's why there are mm. crews out there in the grey uniforms and at some point they all transition to these ones. And then obviously they transition to those wonderful uniforms that you see in the Picard flashbacks as well which i really liked as well yeah. i wasn't too much of a fan of the uniforms that you saw of starfleet in the 2399 picard timeline they went back to that kind of almost border suit to a color from voyager and earlier ds9 but i did love the ones that you saw in the flashbacks that they, they were great too yeah i know what you mean when picard goes into starfleet command and he talks to that ensign who obviously doesn't quite mm. recognize who he is He's got that uniform on, and um, I, I thought the collar looked yeah. quite flimsy on the Picard's uh, modern era uniforms. Definitely. But, um, but yeah, it's uh, it's a good job that the rest of the series was better. Yes, than absolutely. Yeah. And we only and we only saw it. We very, did. Yeah. Very well, it wasn't really about Starfleet, was it? Picard season one. So uh, absolutely. No, yeah. exactly. Cool. So before we go into the detail, then, what are your general thoughts on First Contact? Obviously, they did time travel again. Time travel is a popular thing with mm. Star Trek movies. Uh, I think it's about the third, at least, time they did time travel. I think they took a lot of the criticisms of Generations on board, whereby Star Trek Generations felt like a movie that was made for the fans, mm. and you needed to know really about the history of the show, about who Kirk was, who Picard was who Rene was, who uh, the crew of the Enterprise D were. And, you know, it, it felt very much like you had to know mm. what was going on, particularly as well with Data getting his emotions. You know, people watching that for the first time probably thinking, well, why do I give a damn? But in First Contact, they've basically shown you a film that all you really need to know is that the Borg are cyborgs and they're bad guys. 
And yeah. there you go. Enjoy the rest of the Absolutely. film. Absolutely. It's basically a space zombie movie, isn't it? Which is great with that extra time trial element mm. as well. And I guess that time trial element and the whole idea of First Contact and Zephyr Cochrane, there's enough exposition in the script, which is a really, really solid script yeah. that doesn't feel like exposition dump, but gives you enough to understand what's happening. Because actually, even the Star Trek fans, when you watch this for the first time, you didn't necessarily know exactly when First Contact was, who the aliens were. You knew Zephyr Cochran had created Warp Drive. He actually appeared in an original TOS episode, didn't he? But it was very, very vague and basic. So all that kind yeah. of history set up in this movie was written for the movie. So I think as a Star Trek fan, I was able to follow it. I would have thought more casual fans who watch the movies and less invested in the series would probably be able to follow it as well. Yeah, I always think of it as being a good starter movie for somebody to get into it. After maybe the Kelvin verse, mm. the Kelvin timeline films, I think they're a good. If this is this is a Star Trek movie, and they show them Star Trek two thousand and nine, and if they like that, what do you think? Here's Star Trek First Contact, uh, and they're very much introductory films to show a non-fan. So yeah, and it, it doesn't hurt as well that it's a damn good film. Absolutely, as well. yeah. So let's go into a deeper dive of the movie then. So obviously First Contact is 25 years old, and that's why we're doing this podcast now, rather than doing Generations First, because First Contact is 25 years old, and yes, we're getting old too. <laughs> yeah, did you say you were 15 when you when this film came I out? I was 15 when the movie came out, yes. 19, when was it? 1996. 1996. I was 21. So... Oh, that's the age difference in us then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Not too far behind you. Probably for a massive difference at the time, less so as we get older. We're both into our 40s now, so uh, mm. which is a scary thing to say in itself. I, was, I wasn't 40 when I started this podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we haven't been recording this one that long, have we? No, <laughs> that's the thing, isn't it? <laughs> Quite possibly. So, first contact then. It was directed by Riker himself, Jonathan Frakes, mm -hmm. and written by Brandon Barger and Ronald D. Moore. Obviously, Ronald D. Moore, we talked about a lot about his work in episode five, it was now. Yeah. It was from a story by Braga, Moore, and Rick Berman. It was released on the 22nd of November 1996 in the US, and a month later, on the 13th of December here in the UK. So, unlike the series, we didn't have to wait for three years for the movie, which was great. In this movie, the Borg launched an invasion of Earth. When Picard leads Enterprise in a desperate bid to save the planet, the Borg trail back in time to stop humanity's first contact with alien life in 2063. And the Enterprise is the only ship able to stop Earth from being assimilated in the future. So, uh, yeah, that's the concept. It's it's the Borg invasion and a time trial story kind of thrown into one with the entire future of Star Trek at stake. So I guess the main thing about this is, is much like the, the much-loved Raffle Khan, it's another film that draws upon a classic TV episode, this time Best of Both Worlds, yeah. and and really taps into Next Gen's, well, their greatest villain, the Borg, as well. So uh, I think uh, there's a lot in that movie, and I guess people weren't really expecting a time trial movie when they heard the Borg coming to the movies themselves. Do you think First Contact works on all those levels as a TNG movie, as an action movie, a time trial movie, and essentially a sci-fi zombie movie too? <laughs> <laughs> all of the above um yeah it's there's very much a science fiction movie it feels less like a star trek movie than maybe others but it does feel like yeah it does feel like a zombie movie it feels horror in some uh some aspect yeah. as well it's got comedic parts to it as well particularly with some of barclay's lines yeah and troy yeah 
And Troy, the scene in Zephram Cochran's bar is probably one of my favourite scenes in all of Star Trek. Well, I think we have to tell him the truth. If we tell the truth, the timeline... Timeline! This is no time to argue about time. We don't have the time. What was I saying? You're drunk. I am not. Yes, you are. Look, he wouldn't even talk to me unless I had a drink with him. And then it took three shots of something called tequila just to find out he was the one we're looking for. And I've spent the last 20 minutes trying to keep his hands off me. So don't go criticizing my counseling technique. I genuinely think it ticks all of the boxes that that yeah. makes a blockbuster. And obviously it was a blockbuster. It made $146 million at the box office. Which for Starship, that's pretty good as well, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's good. And I think, you know, blockbuster is the word, I think, for this movie. It's It still feels like a Star Trek movie in the sense it's got the crew, it's got the ship, mm. but it is it is different. And I've actually heard people describe it as much as they think it's a great movie. It doesn't almost feel like a, a Star Trek movie in some ways. It doesn't, you know, Picard is the action hero rather than diplomat. If there's one argument you can make about its first contact is that it doesn't necessarily feel like Star Trek The Next Generation in the true, in true sense, mm. where interaction probably does, and then people saw them, it's not enough like First Contact, so yeah. you can't really win, and and may, maybe that's because I think Star Trek works best on as a TV series, I think because you can do the science and the exploration, and all stuff that makes Star Trek Star Trek, while having these kind of layered threats and experiences happen as well, whereas when you've got a movie, you've kind of got to have that action, you've got to have that kind of heightened drama, that you wouldn't actually get in a TV show, which does kind of pull away, I guess, a little bit from Star Trek and probably more towards the Star Wars aesthetic. Yeah, I mean, you're right enough. And what you're saying about it feeling very distant from Next Generation, it sort of feels like the flip side of what happened to the original series movies because mm. so many people say that the character of Kirk really matured and becomes a much more interesting character by the time of the movies. And they seem to go the other way with Picard. And, you know, Picard over the seven seasons was a very interesting character. And yes, he's still an interesting character in the movies, but he's very much more action hero, as are much of the rest of the cast. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it sort of it sort of flipped it on the head a little bit uh, and made, you know, as I said, Kirk rounded his character out and made Picard mm. a little bit one dimensional over the course of the movies. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think if you, if you take Picard, Riker and Troy, mm. their, their development ends with all good things yeah. and then kind of really picks up again with Sergeant Picard. You, mm. Between them, there's not much. Yes, Riker and Troy get married, he becomes captain. Yes, Picard deals with the trauma of the Borg and his relationship with the Romulans, which again plays into Picard as well. Yeah. But not really much more than that. Data gets a little bit, but really it's just mm. emotions. And then... then his death. So there's, yeah, you're right. There's probably not much in the way of development. They're just entertaining movies, and maybe that's where, ultimately, I think people were dissatisfied with Star Trek Next Gen movies in general. Whereas you look at those current movies, that trilogy of Wrath of Khan, Search for Spock, and Voyage Home is magnificent. I think it's one of the mm. best movie trilogies, not just Star Trek um, trilogies as well. And there's so much storyline depth. You look at Spock and Kirk and, and McCoy particularly, 
and the journeys they go through across those three films and then if you kind of put aside Star Trek Five, you didn't really do much of that. And then Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country kind of brings up full circle, particularly with the Klingons. So yeah. there's some real growth across those four films that you mm. don't necessarily get in the TV series. You're right. Whereas I don't think Picard is really any different by the end of Nemesis to how he was at the end of All Good Things. Loss of data, um, accepted. Yes, that's probably it. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say because obviously Kirk went through those four movies, and by the end of it, he realised yes, he had a deep prejudice, a deep hatred towards the Klingons. But you know, by the end of it, he was just saying, "Look, that's my problem," mm. and getting the Klingons on board the Federation is a great idea. And obviously, by that point, uh, leads into Next Generation. What I was going to say as well is. Um, Worf obviously appears in First Contact, and by this mm. point, he's already a regular cast member on Deep Space Nine, and his character yeah. is already developing in Deep Space Nine. But Worf in First Contact and Insurrection just still feels like Security Officer Worf. It does. I do think you see more of Worf in Command in First Contact than you probably ever saw in Next Gen, though. Yeah, that's true enough. Yeah, that's a fair point. But, you know, obviously with First Contact, Insurrection and Nemesis, it did seem to be that um, they had to try and find a way of bringing Worf mm. on board every film, even yeah. though he's a regular cast member of Deep Space Nine. Oh, and obviously Deep Space Nine had finished by the time of Nemesis as well. Yeah. I think First Contact is the best job, understandably, yes. of doing that. I think yes. Worf and the Defiant is a great mm. way to reintroduce him, whereas... I think Insurrection just turns up out of nowhere. I don't even know where how Worf is there. And then, particularly because it's supposed to be set during the Dominion War, which is another thing. We'll get on to Insurrection when we do a later yeah. podcast, but the idea of the Dominion War in Insurrection almost doesn't really work. But And I think he's probably there at the wedding of Riker and Troy, which is why he's able to be on the ship in Nemesis. Mm. But yeah, I think this film does a good job of kind of reintroducing him. And there's some, there's some great stuff there. But I guess before we get into then his introduction and that yeah. battle, which is a big, big bombastic start, let's talk about those opening scenes then. So what did you think of the scenes around the Borg and Picard's nightmares? That is a really terrifying nightmare, isn't it? Mm. Um, they obviously do all the flashy lighting, jump cut, darkness, and then they do the thing which I absolutely hate in TV and movies where you get something touching the eye. It's, uh, <laughs> yes. it's always annoying. I'm a big Farscape fan as well. And they do two things in Farscape, which I can't watch because they, it's just absolute really nasty eye torture. So, yeah, you've got that needle touching Picard's eye, which... Yeah, and the fact that the eye does start to decompress slightly, just enough to know it's touched. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah, it's it's really nasty. But then he obviously wakes up from his nightmare and looks in the mirror. Or does he? Yeah, that's (laughs) what I was going to say. And suddenly he's being assimilated again. But obviously in that first moment as well, you see a woman's face who we obviously know who she turns out to be later Hmm. on. But um, yeah, it's a great introduction to the film. It is, and to the Borg as well, who looks so good in this movie as well. The best thing Voyager got was the inherited Borg from yes. First Contact. I'm not sure, saying, apart from a few episodes, Voyager did a good job with the Borg. You know, I think Scorpion was a pretty good example of what they did, mm-hmm. but they inherited this amazing-looking, terrifying, disturbing Borg, and they, they look so good in this movie too. I mean, everything looks good in this movie. You can tell they put budget into it with the Enterprise and the uniforms and the Borg themselves, and 
there's a yeah that those those scenes on the Borg ship and the double whammy of the nightmare mm. is is great as well. And uh, you really get sense of who the Borg are, particularly as if you are a casual fan, you may have heard of them. But I think it's a brilliant way of updating what is one of Star Trek's best villains. Yeah, and and not just that, just the very fact that they're called the Borg. You know, even mm. if you know the basic stuff about science fiction, oh, the Borg, well, that sounds a bit like Cyborg. Yeah, absolutely. There you go, you've nailed it. And, of course, then you get that absolutely gorgeous shot of the Enterprise E coming through the nebula. That just blows me away every single time. Mm. It, it is beautiful. And what I really liked as well in those opening scenes as well is... The pacing is so good in this movie. The pacing, you know, in the first five, ten minutes before the big battle, you really establish everything that's hurrying on. You've got Picard's trauma. You've got his flashbacks to his assimilation. You've got that really, really disturbing scene where they've been sent to the neutral zone and then they listen to the battle, which basically is a redo of Wolf 359 as well. And Mm. it's just amazing to hear how quickly... It goes from all the ships being ready to just being destroyed one by one by one by the Borg. They're wiped out, and that just shows how powerful the Borg are. Yeah, they're just systematically dismantling the uh, the Armada that Starfleet have sent to try and intercept them, and it just completely ripped through them. When you get to Earth, you get you get the battle, and you define it. I I, I love the defining battle, and. Uh, it's great because it's great, it was designed to fight the Borg when when it was introduced to to fight the Dominion in DS Nine. Mm. They said the ship was designed after Best of Both Worlds to be a vessel, a warship that could battle the Borg. And it's absolutely great that you get to see the fight in, in battle with the Borg because the Borg were never in DS9. I understand, I think, the reasons why they didn't use them, but it's great that you get to see the ship in battle. And what a mm. stunning battle it is. Yeah, it's. You get. I think it's the battle that we wanted mm. to see with Wolf 359 yeah. because in Best of Both Worlds, the Enterprise C turns up and you can tell that there's been this absolute massacre of Starfleet ships because there's model kits left everywhere. <laughs> and the Borg have obviously just completely stormed through that. They're on their way to Earth. And you just think, oh, I kind of missed that. And you saw a bit of it in Emissary as well. The DS9 pilot, yes. Because Cisco was at the Battle of War 359, yes. So you get a little bit there, which is great. And uh, apparently there are edits out there of that battle from Emissary cut into Best of Both Worlds, which I'm sure is great to watch. But uh, you're absolutely right. It's great that you get to see the battle. I I think this is what's really interesting about First Contact. You're expecting this is the film. Mm -hmm. The film is the Borg invasion and these stunning battles, the Borg assimilating and how they stop it. But actually that's been done already in Best of Both Worlds. So obviously First Contact, probably quite wisely, doesn't go down best of both worlds too it goes down a very different route but you obviously get what you want there which is that big battle with all those gorgeous new designs of ships as well there's mm. lots of ship design weren't they for this battle and the defiant there in the thick of it and wharf to say prepare for ravin speed which is just a great line in itself <laughs> obviously the enterprise is uh, is sent to patrol the neutral zone just in case the romulans take advantage and you can tell straight away that both riker and picard are going yeah, are we going to do that? No. <laughs> no. I love Data's line to hell with Starfleet orders, and they just, they, they yes. up and then it's such a joyous moment when the Enterprise turns up and just swoops over the Defiant. And mm. uh, it's great. It's watching too much lower decks now, but they go, oh, it's the Enterprise. The Enterprise is going to save the day. And, uh, and it's, it's always a little bit cheesy, but it, 
Yeah, but it absolutely works, and it's such mm. a great way. You just you just see on the views all these ships, like you know, the way you just see it is literally in like they look at the view screen and the Borg ship's there, and the space of like thirty seconds, five ships just blowing up. It's like this is this is insane. This is crazy, and uh, yeah, I just love how Picard turns the battle around and mm. has them attack the Borg cube itself. It's such an exciting, thrilling opening to the film. Yeah, and you kind of think it's over straight away as well because the cube, yeah. the cube suddenly it's exploding, and you think, oh, okay, that was quick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how long am I into this film again? It's about ten minutes, yeah. and they destroy the Borg cube, and it's. I think that's what I like about First Contact. The first ten minutes is the best of both worlds mm. too, and then it does something else, which is great because otherwise. As great as it would have been to see a cinematic version of Best of Both Worlds, it's been done on Star Trek already. Yeah. It's, it's one of Star Trek's greatest two-parters. You don't need to do that again, whereas this does something very different with the Borg, and I think it absolutely works because it suddenly becomes a much more intimate movie, which is really interesting. And I guess you're right about the character work suffering, but at least the one thing this film does is really delve into Picard's trauma over the mm. Borg. Yeah. yeah. And you get the sphere coming out of the cube as yeah. well and suddenly another film starts up and yes that's where we get the remake of best of both worlds ending and star mm. trek first contact technically beginning absolutely what do you think of the twist then that happens the uh, suddenly after this big battle they've enterprise save the day and suddenly earth is all nine nine billion all borg I, uh, I I held my breath at that point when I saw it for the first time. It's like, oh my god! But obviously, you've still got the wake of where the Borg sphere is going through. Um, yeah, the temporal vortex. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you just think, you know, where the Enterprise is going to be going next. <laughs> yeah, it's a great twist. I think that's what's great about the movie. You think it's best of both worlds. You get that battle, then the Borg cube's destroyed, and you think, well, what's going to happen now? And then you've got this twist as well. You won't expect in a time trial movie. I, I think the trailers probably show a lot of it, actually. Mm. But in a way, I think the trailers are very good as well, because the trailers, even though they think they suggested time trial was going to be involved, and it's about them stopping the Borg, what they've done, it still looked from the trailers like it was going to be all that action all the way through. And I think the, the, the Battle of Earth... Is superseded throughout the trailer, so it looks like it's a constant battle. Well, yeah. actually, it's not. So, uh, yeah, it's it's very well done and very well paced. And I I think the Earth nine billion all Borg is a really really great twist. It's I think it's one of Star Trek's best twists. I think mm. in the way that it just completely subverts your expectations of the movie. Yeah, and the way Earth looks as well as it's completely mm. Borgified. It's it's very very yeah. scary. Yeah. And of course, you arrive back in 2063, 10 years after the Third World War. So we've got, I know things are bleak at the moment, but yeah, we've, we've not got long till World War Three, apparently, Jeff. Well, yeah, uh, I mean, when's um, when's the uh, past tense episode set? That's only a couple of years from now, isn't it? That's not far from me. I think it's the end, end, end of this decade, yeah. Mm. And uh, we did manage to miss the eugenics wars, so. <laughs> but then so did Janeway. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I guess there's the thing about Star Trek. Star Trek is a very optimistic look at the future. Mm. I, I know it's subverted in things like Discovery Season 3 and certainly in Picard's, but it's a very optimistic future, but it actually suggests that things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. You know, back in the 60s, they had this eugenics war in the 90s. Now, first contact suggesting we're going to have a nuclear Armageddon in the 2040s, 2050s, and it's going to be... Uh, 2063 before things change and of course then you've got the things from the counter far point which are going to 
appear probably in some form in the new Picard season two. So there's yes, yeah, it's a very very twenty first century. It's very very bleak. In in the twentieth, early twenty first century, it's very very bleak in terms of Star Trek timeline. And you've also got the Romulan War that takes place just mm. after Enterprise finishes, which I really wish yeah. we'd seen. Um, yes. You've got the Dominion War, obviously a couple of hundred years from there. You've got the Borg. You've got what happens with the Romulans then by the time of Picard. And mm. yeah, is it that optimistic future? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think as Star Trek goes on, maybe it's less and less optimistic. But I think what it certainly suggests is actually before you get to Star Trek, which is essentially the first contact of this movie, mm. things are going to be pretty bleak for us. So maybe actually it's a good thing that we're not heading quite down the Star Trek route because otherwise things are going to get a lot worse for us. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting setting, is it? 2063, because it's something that, even in 1996, it's probably doing the same thing as the eugenics wars of the 90s against the 60s Kirk era, but it, it's something that is not that too far in the future. No. I mean, certainly now, it, obviously, first contact 25 years old, and we're probably almost as close to the Third World War Star Trek as we are to when Star Trek first contact came yeah. out. But it's a, it's a really interesting setting because I guess what's quite good about it is it means that they don't have, they can dispense of all the governments in play and everything going out on earth and they can really focus on montana and zephyr cochran's flight because you don't have to worry about what's happening in the rest of the world so in one sense it's quite a bit of clever scripting from braga and more because you don't have to dispense with what's the status of earth outside of the focus of the movie mm. yeah exactly it's it's you're only really worried about, and not even the whole of Earth. You're just worried really about this particular corner of Montana where this warp capable spaceship is being built basically by what looks like a drunk scientist, <laughs> um, sticky back plastics and washing up liquid bottles and, uh, and um, you know, very, very basic and primitive technology for twenty fourth century standards. Yeah, well, let's talk about Cochrane actually, because he's mm. quite an interesting character. He's a, uh, he's not the hero that they make him out to be. You know, and there's early things when they arrive, and you've got Picard and Data touching the Phoenix and feeling all this awe of the majesty of of essentially Star Trek being born with warp flight. Mm. And then, uh, what I really like about it is actually, it's not that at all. And you get things like the crew and Geordie and Barclay, particularly, you know, the, the hero worship of Zephyr Cochran, Zephyr Cochran High School, and the 60 foot statue of him in Montana. And, you know, and actually, what I really like about it is that that is not Zephyr Cochran. He's there for the money. He's there. Mm. He's obviously a clever man, very, very clever because he developed Walk Flight, but it's not the hero that he was made out to be and i think james cromwell is a really fun but very grounded relatable performance as this character yeah and i think by the time we see him later in his life in the original series he's sort of taken on more of the mantle of well yes i did found warp drive i did i, I am the father of warp drive etc and he becomes a bit more heroic by that time all right he's obviously still got his problems when we meet him in the original series but he is, he's not a perfect man. He's got issues. Mm. He likes his alcohol. He is very much driven by selling warp drive to the highest bidder. You know, he yeah. he wants the money side of this. And meeting aliens is far from his objective. Yeah. 
it's really, really, really interesting to see this different side to the, this hero. And the idea is don't be heroes because they're not what you expect. Mm. And yeah, I really, I, I think I really love Cromwell's performance. Apparently, the the actor they really had in mind was Tom Hanks, yes, who was a big Star Trek mm. fan, and he couldn't do. I think scheduling with other work he was on meant that he couldn't really get involved in the movie. So pretty early on, he what he was discounted, but. I love Tom Hanks as an actor, but I think he may have been a bit closer to that kind of hero character that the idea of the Enterprise could certainly believe him to be. I, I really like James Cromwell because he's much much more rough and ready. I, I think he he's much more like us. Yeah. I think that's what's really engaging about the character as, as a character. He he feels like someone we would know now and but he's but he but he's all he's very human, but he's also very fun as well and very very flawed you said yeah i think as well going back to what you said about tom hanks i think if it had turned out that that tom hanks played him i think it would have become a tom hanks movie as opposed to a star trek movie Mm. and that's one of the things i remember when uh whoopi goldberg said that she was going to be doing generations she didn't want to be credited in that film because she said, look, if I get credited, then suddenly the press are going to say, this is a Whoopi Goldberg film. I'm I'm yeah. not in it that much, so it's a Star Trek film. Don't credit me. Yeah. But Whoopi Goldberg wasn't actually asked to be in First Contact as mm. well. She, a little bit shame, obviously, her relationship with the Borg would have been another, yeah. another interesting dynamic. But I guess the one thing about this movie is that it's actually very, very streamlined, very focused. That's what's great about the movie. It's, it, it, it dispenses with any kind of bump. It's all about... Fixing the ship, getting to the Falcon, do his flight, and also stopping the Borg from essentially assimilating the Enterprise and destroying the Phoenix. That's all it's very, very focused on. And you've got the trauma of the Borg through Picard. So if you have Guyan on the ship, it would have been absolutely amazing to see Whoopi Goldberg as Guyan back on, on First Contact. It would have been, it would, would have, for the most part, added to the movie. But the one thing it would have taken away from that is maybe that, that focus on. Picard and his relationship with Lily as well, and I really love that yeah. relationship as well. So we'll get into that in a bit. But uh, it's through Lily he really explores that trauma, and I think if Guyan had been there, we've again we've done that before. Mm. Guyan is very much a big part of Best of Both Worlds. So if you have Guyan involved and having that wisdom and that kind of personal experience of her own people being assimilated by the Borg, well, we've, we've had those discussions already. Yeah. So I like that it's a little bit different. It's again, it's nothing about how First Contact circumvents give expectations and does something a little bit different rather than just trying to be a big budget replay of one of Star Trek's greatest mm. hits. Now you've said that, I do wonder if a lot of the stuff that Lily does and says is something that they originally had in mind for Guinan, because I could almost imagine Guinan there being the one to tell Picard to blow up the damn ship. Yeah, no, I think that would be really interesting. I think it would be in a different movie. I think it works... Maybe because partly because Alfie Woodward is amazing as yeah, well. She, she is so good at this movie. Mm-hmm. And I think her connection with Patrick Stewart's Picard is so good. I think that's the heart of the movie is, is the two of them. And I think it would have worked and had heart and had drama had it been Guinan. And maybe, you know, would Guy have screamed at him to blow up his damn ship? That would have been interesting because the guy never really went there. So uh, she probably wouldn't have screamed it, but she'd probably have been there saying. Yeah. Come on, Jean-Luc, you know what you've got to do. You, you need to yeah. destroy the Enterprise. You know what yeah. the Borg are capable of. It would have been more subdued, more subtle, but Picard would still have listened to her. So, 
yeah, yeah. absolutely i actually think as much as i would love to see Wally goldberg and the impact of the ball um, on Guardian and her being involved i think it's probably the right decision that she's yes, not in the movie I, I think again that that very very focused yeah before we get on to the ball then as well and, and lillian picard and so on go around to Stephen Cochran, you mentioned that scene the scene with drunk troy is, is so good it's so <laughs> funny i mean troy doesn't get a lot to do in this movie but she absolutely gets this fantastic scene and i love the uh drunk there is no time to argue about time we don't have the time to argue about time and she's completely mm-hmm. drunk uh being trying to fend off a very lecherous cochran drunk on seven shots of tequila but she's obviously found the guy they're looking for it's it's, it's a really really fun yeah. scene um uh, i take my hat off to marina Suetis for playing drunk diana troy but mm. i've got to say as well jonathan freaks as Riker, and the reactions that he does in this particular scene yeah particularly the very last moment where Troy falls off her chair and Riker's <laughs> just got this look as if, oh God, what have I got here? <laughs> but yeah, it's yeah, great. It's, it's potentially my favourite scene in the film, which is weird because it's such a, it's such a great film anyway. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You, you could have cut that scene and probably not lost anything from the movie really, but it absolutely works. It's, it gives her a, a some bit of the limelight. I, I guess the, if we're going to say one thing about this movie, I think Troy and Crusher don't get a lot to do. Crusher doesn't really get a lot to do in this movie. And Troy gets that one scene. And I, I do feel they're, they're a bit shortchanged mm, by the movie. Yeah. Possibly because Alfie Wood was stepping in as that strong female character. But yeah, it, it does, does give Marina Sotis something fun to play with. And uh, which is always good. Dr. Crusher's most important scene in this is evacuating sickbay. Um, isn't it? And yeah. obviously that's where we see the emergency medical hologram from Voyager yeah. uh, turn up. But, but they are using his sick bay because they haven't got an Enterprise-y sick bay set at this point. Computer, activate the EMH program. Please state the nature of the medical emergency. 20 Borg are about to break through that door. We need time to get out of here. Create a diversion. This isn't part of my program. I'm a doctor, not a doorstop. Well, do a dance. Tell a story. I don't care. Just give us a few seconds. According to Starfleet Medical Research, Borg implants can cause severe skin irritations. Perhaps you'd like an analgesic cream? Build up to the Borg of this movie is great. I think it's very, very alien. I, I love the subtle hints like the temperatures changed mm. and like as Geordie leaves engineering to go onto the planet to help deal with Phoenix and says, you know, can you check out the environmental controls? They've gone a bit crazy, and it's a very throwaway mm. line, but it's almost a very dun 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 sinister moment that something's happening. And I really love the idea that the Borg are just in there, and they just they go from what assume possibly one drone, yeah, and maybe one drone and the, and the Queen in some form, and that's it. You imagine the Queen and one drone got on the ship. And that's all you need. That's what's great about it. It's the idea that a zombie, you know. You need one person to get bit and the zombies virus spreads. And I think that's what they do here really, really well. Mm. And I really love how it just intensifies really quickly. You get a couple of moments of that's a bit odd. Something's a bit odd. Mm. But they're dealing with the Phoenix and uh, and finding Zeph and Cochran. And then you get Picard coming back to the ship. Lily has already uh, she's fallen unconscious with radiation poisoning mm-hmm. from the from the Phoenix, which was damaged in the in, in the Borg attack. And uh yeah, so you've got Lily in sickbay with Crusher, and you've got Picard going, something's quite not quite mm. right here. And I love that scene. You go, you go, some, go some very, oh, 
something's a bit off to the Borger attacking the other one on the one yeah. that deck. And yeah, I love the EMH cameo in this movie. It's another great, great funny scene. But I guess Robert Picardo being such a good actor, he again he steals Crusher's only real moment yeah. in the movie. So uh so it is, it, I, I do feel sorry for Gates McFadden. And generally across the movies, I don't think she gets anything really meaty to do. At least Marina Sir has got a saint to do with probably more in Nemesis, whereas I don't think Crush does anything apart from be the Doctor. There's nothing on the Picard Crusher romance no. for those things to be dropped completely. Couldn't tell you what Crusher does in any of the movies apart from evacuate sick bay and be one of the people that helps blow up the ship in this movie. That's She's it. She's one of the people that helps the Baku escape the village. She's she's part mm. of that group that fire on the ships yeah. in insurrection. But no, you're right. She's very much she's very invisible over the four movies. Mm. I mean, okay, she does she does fall off the ship in generations. Yes. <laughs> but I think that's really it. I can't really think of much else besides those couple of scenes. No. I've only just rewatched Nemesis as well, and for the life of me, I can't remember much about what she does in Nemesis, and that's that's bad. I watched Nemesis a couple of years ago, and I don't remember her at all in the movie. I know she's there, mm. but I know I remember Troy has a bit to do uh, in that movie, but I don't remember Crusher at all. It, it's it's a real it's a real shame that she's just she's part of someone, but doesn't really get anything to do. I mean, I think maybe that's again another issue with the Star Trek Generation movies. They really focus in the same way as the original movies on core characters. So Data gets a lot, yeah. Picard gets a lot, yeah. Riker and Troy get a little bit together, but really Geordie doesn't really. Apart from Geordie's new eye implants, which are really cool, yeah, they look great. I don't think Geordie gets much to do in these movies. There's a little bit more in this. I like his hero worship with Cochrane in this movie, but it's a bit more than Crusher, but not much more on that. But I don't think Geordie gets much to do. I don't think. Worf really gets a lot to mm. do. It's great to be have seen him on there and, and be Worf in action. And there's some great stuff in this. This is his best movie, I think, for that. Yes. All the three Enterprise E movies. But yeah, they, they do get lost. And it's, it's like the original films where they focused on Kirk's Mark McCoy. And actually, if you think about the original Kirk movies, with the exception of probably Sulu on the Excelsior in Undiscovered Country, Sulu... Chekhov maybe a bit in Khan, Uhura, they, they get moments, but they don't get enough really meaty storylines in those movies. It's all about Kirk and Spock and McCoy. And in these movies, it's very much about Picard and Data, I think, with Troy and Riker maybe slightly behind them. So it does mean that characters suffer, and I think Crush is probably the biggest casualty of these uh, next-gen mm. movies. Uh, just going on to the Kirk um, series, I think Star Trek Four is probably ex the exception because when they all split off and um, explore San Francisco by themselves, they all get to do quite a lot of decent scenes by themselves. But um, outside of that, no, I think you're right. All I can think of otherwise is Uhura dancing in Star Trek Five. Um, yeah. <laughs> Scotty banging his head. Yeah, you're right about Star Trek 4, actually. I interviewed Walter Kanan a few years ago at Destination Star Trek, mm. and he said his favourite Star Trek thing about Star Trek was was the voyage home, because everyone got something to do. Yeah. So, yeah, I can, I can see why. But, yeah, they, they, you don't get that kind of movie in the next-gen movies, and, uh, yeah, Crush is certainly a casualty of that. But, yeah, going back to the Borg and the build-up, that, that, that escape from sickbay is great. Obviously, Lily gets separated from Crusher and the others, and... Yeah, it really, really builds up that music as it builds up to them 
going down to that deck to fight the Borg. And Data's fear. So he obviously turns off his emotion chip and uh, Picard envying him. And the weight builds and builds and builds that tension. And then you get that full-on, really terrifying zombie sequence, really, isn't it? When the Borg come out and it's kind of be tense and Data gets captured. And, and basically, it's, it's space zombies and full-on body horror. Yeah, the scenes where people get assimilated in this movie are really, really, really nasty. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and because obviously we've got that moment where Data's captured... What's your take on the Borg Queen? What did you think when you first saw her? I love the Borg Queen. I love Alice Creature's performance. Mm. I really like the stuff with Data and the Borg Queen in this movie. However, in terms of the Borg, it never really makes any sense. I understand why they did it. I think they did it because apparently they had a lot of scenes with Data talking to a computer, talking to the Borg mm. in the movie, which I can see how that would have worked just as well. We were taken to the summer stuff around the seduction would have also been lost. I think Alice Creech gives a lot to the performance and she's such a great performance. That scene when the Borg Queen first appears is a great piece yeah. of cinema when she first comes down, cut from, from the rafters. And uh, it's it's a really great character and performance, but it doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of the movie. It's, it's there to give something to the enemy, to give it a face because you... Yeah. you you don't have a Khan, you don't have a Soran, you don't have Chang. You need there's no real villain there to kind of bounce off. The Borg are just this ensemble mass. And that's what's great about the Borg. You almost you don't need the Borg Queen really because the Borg are this unstoppable mass and relentless. If you take the Borg if you take out the Borg Queen, mm. all those scenes when the Borg are just relentlessly assimilate the ship are amazing. Yeah. It's so, so good and so terrifying. You don't need that. And yeah, I like it. I, I I like those scenes. I think once you accept it, okay, it doesn't really make any sense, but you go with it anyway. I, I love the Borg Queen and Data in this movie. I bring order to chaos. An interesting, if cryptic, response. You are in chaos, Data. You are the contradiction, a machine who wishes to be human. Since you seem to know so much about me, you must be aware that I am programmed to evolve better myself we too are on a quest to better ourselves evolving toward a state of perfection forgive me but the borg do not evolve they conquer by assimilating other beings into our collective we are bringing them closer to perfection somehow i question your motives that is because you haven't been properly stimulated she's a hollywood bad guy basically it's a case of you've got this faceless entity being the bad guy in a major blockbuster movie and i think hollywood just sort of felt mm, that's that's a bit metaphysical can we have somebody representing them and be the bad guy um and that's obviously how the board queen came along and it, to some extent, it does make a little bit of sense to me because they've always said the Borg have got a hive mind. What do you have in a hive or a beehive? You have a queen. And yeah. as a result, that's obviously where the Borg queen thing came from. And I do get that. The one thing I always found funny, about six, seven months before the film came out, uh, there was a convention I went to in Cardiff. And two of the guests there were... Eric Stilwell and Lolita Fajo, who 
who were obviously on the writing staff and the production team of Star Trek and the movies at the time. And they had a panel and somebody asked her something about the Borg Queen. I can't remember the question. And they had a shocked look on their face. And this was obviously before much of what we know of the internet. Um, But they said, how do you know about the Borg Queen? They genuinely didn't know that information about the Borg Queen had made it into the public domain. As I said, this was about six months before the film was released Mm. as well. And they said, uh, well, you know, who's the Borg Queen? Can you tell us about the Borg Queen? It's like, how do you know about the Borg Queen? And they they were on the back foot a little bit then, as as if to say they didn't know how to answer, because they genuinely weren't expecting anybody to ask them about the Borg Queen. I was at the same destination Star Trek where I interviewed Walter Kanin, and I was at a press conference. I I was a press for a site I used to write for. Mm-hmm. And I'm on the many, many guests there. Alice Creed was there. And there was a technical failure on the stage at the time. She was one of the last guests to come out. And the lights failed and she was plunged into darkness. So she went, can't closer. So we all came up to the stage, sat by the stage. And she sat down on the edge of the stage and proceeded to talk for 10 minutes about how to get into the suit and how they <laughs> would literally get lube to basically get her into the suit because it was so tight to get into. And it was mm-hmm. great that her description of the complexity and the discomfort of the suit and this this the this, this, this sheer amount of lube that we used to get it in and out of the suit was brilliant so it was it was, it was one of those memorable things as a Star Trek fan just hearing her really go into detail about the complexities mm-hmm. of actually playing the ball queen it was a it's, it's, it's great very fun but uh she, she obviously really enjoyed playing the role mm. well it would obviously she came back and played the role at the end of Voyager so, yeah, which I, which I loved. I mean, Susanna yeah. Thompson was okay as the Borg Queen. She was fine. She's a good actress. I've seen in many things like Arrow and NCS. Mm. She's good in a few things. But yeah, get Alice Creed back as a Borg Queen at the end of, end of Voyager was great because I don't think the Voyager for Lali is brilliant. There's some good stuff and some very, lots of issues as well, but that's a different podcast entirely. But <laughs> We'll leave that one to I, the game, Yes, and that's a while off yet. But I really liked having Alice Creech back and I'm almost a little bit disappointed because now they've announced the Borg Queen is going to be in Picard season two. Mm. He actually got playing the Borg Queen. She's a great actress. I'm really happy who's playing the Borg Queen, but it's not Alice Creech. Um, maybe it's probably because Alice Creech is a bit older now and probably yeah. too old maybe to play the Borg Queen, but I do love her performance. She's a very memorable villain. I, I don't know much about the new actress that's playing um, the Borg Queen. I, I haven't seen anything else that she's done. But, um, yeah, I mean, with the greatest of respect to Alice Creek, it's 25 years later. Yes, um, And would she be comfortable squeezing into that tight latex suit again? <laughs> no, exactly. No, no, no more lube, no. <laughs> Absolutely and, not. And Susanna Thompson probably said no to that one as well. Yeah. Voyager Endgame is about five years after First Contact, so actually there's not that much time between the movies. So no, true. You, can see, you can see why they... Um, you know, to get her back, but yeah, Alice Creed is obviously too old to play the role now. But um, yeah, the actress playing is good. She's a she's a really good villain in the show called Timeless from a couple of years ago. She was in Twenty Four, in Bosch, uh, in quite a few shows. She was a really good villain in The Rookie, which is which is airing now. So there's some really good stuff with her. I think she'll do a really good ball queen. But Alice Creed is the ball queen. She's so good. She's so menacing, and that kind of seduction of data. Mm. It's kind of it's. It's not quite sexy because it's creepy, yeah. and she's like this is very moisture about her. It's very slimy mm. about the way she looks and stuff. But 
it she looks great she's very sensual as a character and the way like when they put the skin on david's arm and she blows on his arm and, and he's ooh, yeah. and, 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 the, and the kiss it's it's yeah it's a little bit twisted and i, I didn't really appreciate the callback to naked now with data's uh functionality <laughs> <laughs> there as well, yes. which was quite fun. But uh, yeah, there, there are there are good scenes, and I think they do enough of those scenes that when you get to the twist and Data's betrayal in inverted commas later on, you almost think, is he actually going to betray Picard? Is he going to betray the Enterprise here? Because she does give him something that he's been looking for, or at least it's made out to be that she's given him such a huge humanity in the form of flesh as well. So yeah. that that's really great. The I also want to talk about Picard and Lily, and I, I really love the pairing of Alfred Woodard and Patrick Stewart together. There's a real energy to those scenes as well. Yeah, the, um, there's one scene in particular where she's she's absolutely convinced that Picard is working for, is it a terrorist organisation or a rival faction or something? Yes. And they're going through the ship, um, and uh, Picard just basically says, oh, yeah, no problem, you, you can go now, and goes into this room, opens this panel... And she sees Earth, mil- well, miles. It's a lovely and- scene, that. It's it's amazing. It's very, very, it's great to look at. But from Lily's point of view, she suddenly realised, oh, I am on a spaceship. I am orbiting mm. Earth. But yeah, that that is that is a great scene in itself. And obviously, the moment later on that I referred to, where Picard is refusing to do anything because even though the Borg are slowly, systematically taking over the ship, he's absolutely refusing to blow up the ship. Mm. And, you know, fair enough, he's only just had to crash his previous ship um, <laughs> and he doesn't want to do it. And she's just basically saying, look, do it. It's the only way you're going to destroy them. And, um, yeah, I, I think even at that moment, he sort of takes a step back and takes stock with what we've got, go- uh, what he's got going on. Oh, come on, Captain. You're not the first man to get a thrill from murdering someone. I see it all the time. Get out! Or what? You'll kill me? Like you killed Ensign Lynch? There was no way to save him. You didn't even try. Where was your evolved sensibility then? I don't have time for this. Oh, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt your little quest. Captain Ahab has to go hunt his whale. What? You do have books in the 24th century. This is not about revenge. Liar! This is about saving the future of humanity! Jean-Luc, blow up the damn ship! No! No! Yeah, that's a really powerful scene because that is Picard's trauma manifest. The way he refuses to relent, he he he's as relentless as the Borg. That's what's what yeah. it really is. He is so broken by them. You know, he's willing to let people die if it means he can actually stop them. He you know he he won't save the crew. End point ends to Lynch, and she calls out the guy, the Borg simulated crew member that you see in the holodeck, which I want to talk about in a second anyway. But yeah, that that's a really really powerful scene. And because she's the outsider, she can go bullshit. Yeah. This is not about you wanting justice or you trying to save the day. You want revenge. You want to kill them. You want to make them hurt like they hurt you. It's such an amazing scene. And it's the real manifest of his entire trauma that has run through all Star Trek. You know, you see it in Family, the brilliant family, which follows off the best of both worlds. You see it in his interactions with Hugh and the Borg later on mm. in later seasons of the next gen. And you see it manifest here and 
it almost works that he's an action hero because he's so enraged and so consumed by his hatred and his terror yeah. and all-consuming trauma of what happened to him that he is the he's like John McLean in this movie. He's just shooting and killing and, and not doesn't stop. And it's very unlike Picard, but at the same time, it's so believable because of what they did to him. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what they did, what the Borg turned him into, basically removed so much of his humanity, used him to destroy Starfleet ships, mm. destroy, you know, assimilate planets. And obviously the first time that you see Cisco and the way he speaks to Picard, mm. obviously that's, I presume, not the only time he's been spoken to by somebody yeah. that was a victim um, from Wolf 359. So, you know, he's, he's the captain of a starship and he, while being used by an enemy, has killed thousands and thousands of people that he work with. Yeah. So it's like, how do you get, how do you get away from it? You don't really. And yeah. I, that's what I love about this movie is, yes, there's not a lot of character work in such movies, but in this movie, you do yeah. focus on that trauma. You really draw down into that trauma and they call Picard out on it. And that's what Lily is there for. She's a great, she calls him out on his actions. And it's a brilliant, brilliant scene. It's one of the, my, that, that you broke your ship is such a powerful scene. The whole thing about that, that, that for me is my favorite scene of the movie. I think the, the, I think the scene when they go onto the engineering deck and all hell breaks loose and everything's assimilated is great. And this scene, another couple of great Lily Picard moments. The, the scene when she first sees a Borg drone and screams is actually very, very real. Apparently, Alfred Woodard hadn't mm. seen Next Generation, so she had known what the Borg looked like. So that reaction of seeing a Borg and screaming is, genuine. is her genuine first scene of Borg because of how good they are. Then when they are. Oh, wow. And yeah, so much more terrifying than they ever were in the original Next Gen series. And yeah, that, that reaction is genuine. Yeah, I, I can see yeah. that actually. Another moment as well. I know you were going to talk about it, but the holodeck scene. Yes. Because you said about you, you broke your ships, right? Mm. You see another moment of uncontained rage from Picard when he is just absolutely letting rip with one of the Tommy guns yes. into that one Borg drone. And he's there, he's run out of ammo mm. and he's getting ready to bash this Borg's yeah. skull in with with the gun itself and he he has to be physically restrained by lily mm. to stop it stop him from doing it yeah it's a really powerful moment as well it's a great scene mm. even phillips who plays neelix is the is the major d when they come into the yeah on, on, on the, the scene as well it's a lovely callback to the big goodbye i was never a big fan of the dixon hill storylines i know we talked about mm. it in our tech failures episode we talked about the big goodbye didn't we yeah but i do love that juxtaposition of 1920s gangsters and Tommy guns versus the Borg. It's a really, really interesting one. And then that added bit on top of Picard's trauma, his relentlessness, and of course the idea that when she goes, oh, it was one of yours, yes, Enton Lynch. And he, there's no emotion there. He's so broken. He's so yeah. beyond care. And, you know, he can't do anything for her. And he's so focused, tunnel vision on what he needs to do. The fact that this actually is an Enton served on the yeah. ship and oh yeah it's Anton Lynch is dead is you almost imagine if it had been a more major character would he have reacted any differently possibly not because he's so broken by the Borg it's yeah it's a really great scene there's another character in this uh, film as well that we haven't talked about yet yes um, Hawk, yeah Lieutenant Hawk um who the actor obviously went on to be quite a big part of the Arrowverse yes um, it's Damien Dark yeah yeah uh 
but I thought he was a great introduction mm. to the Star Trek universe as well. I really like Lieutenant Hawk. Yeah, maybe you could have substituted him for another main character like Geordie on a deflected dish, mm. say maybe, but I, I like him. The only, the only trouble is because that deflected dish scene is Worf, Picard and Hawk. Someone's probably yeah. going to die. You know it's going to be Hawk. He's the it's, red shirt. <laughs> yeah, it, it, he's a bit red shirt. It, it's great. I, I really like Hawk and I thought that he did a really good, he made a really good impression of what the role was given, the role he had. So yeah, yeah that deflected dish scene I thought about my favourite scenes in the movie yet. Yeah, right, the, the, the blow up your damn ship, mm. the first real fight with the Borg on the engineering deck and the deflected dish scene. It's it's a proper cinematic sequence, isn't it? The idea of them walking on the outside of the ship and battling the Borg to stop them sending the signal. What are your thoughts on that sequence? It starts off, obviously, with the moment of humour uh, where you could tell Worf is trying to get over the fact that he's walking upside down on the ship. I can't remember yes. the exact line, but Picard asks him about his, uh, or did he take his space medication or whatever it was? And he says, mm. oh, yeah, have you done zero-G training before? He says, yeah, it uh, made me sick to the stomach or whatever the wording is. Um, and it starts off quite funny, but then obviously you've got the moment where you think Worf has been killed as well because mm. he gets attacked. Uh, he's obviously got his spacesuit being damaged by one of the Borg attacks. Um, mm. And next thing you know, you, you see him reappear with the Borg arm hanging off and his spacesuit being tied back up again. And, of course, the great line, assimilate this. Yes. But... <laughs> it's great. It's a real, real tense sequence because the idea, I like about the Borg, that's a zombie type thing where they, they don't notice you until you make you basically attract attention. So I like the idea, the tension of them trying to deactivate by going to the different ports and the Borg are completely oblivious and then they just turn, their heads turn, they look at them and they keep working and at some point they, they actually start to react. It's mm. the, that build up of tension on that scene, and you've got War for the Mechleth there. I love, I love the Mechleth. I always prefer it to, to the Batleth in a way. Yeah. It's, a, it's a really kind of cool, cool fighting weapon. And uh, poor Hulk, who then becomes Terminator Hulk, start with the, with the turn of the head as he gets assimilated. It's great. It's it's a real fun sequence, but it's a real big action sequence, and it feels like a movie sequence, yeah. if that makes sense. I can't imagine this having been done on a TV series. I do not think there would ever been a budget for this. No, maybe no. in the later whatever the Voyage. I know you use these again. Voyage inherited so much from First Contact. They made the suits. They made the Borg. But yeah, I, I really like the um, sequence because it feels grandiose and it feels big, but it also is very very tense, and very claustrophobic at the same time. And it's it's there's only four Borg there, but with the added tension of them sending a signal to bring the Borg to Earth as well from the Delta yeah. Quadrant. There's a lot of stakes at play there. And yeah, it's just it's just beautiful from beginning to end. Yeah. But my only issue with that entire scene, and it is such a nitpicky complaint, is that I have problems imagining it on the, on the surface of the ship because it, it looks like a movie set. Um, mm. that's my only minor gripe with it. Obviously, you see them walking across the hull, but um, and you know that they're on the deflector dish, and you know where the deflector dish is on the Enterprise, and it still kind of feels like they're somewhere else. But mm. uh, as I said, it's, it's so nitpicky, and maybe it's just my own brain <laughs> causing me yeah. to see maybe, things Maybe, I don't know. I didn't really, I, I get so invested in that scene, I didn't notice, but maybe it's one of those obvious ones we there's gonna be a big green screen behind the set they're on in the in the, in the mm. stage and maybe 
you can kind of sense i don't know but i think generally for 25 years the effects really hold up in this yeah. movie oh i'm not yeah. i'm not knocking it it's mm. um yeah. it, it is it has got some amazing special effects for 1996 mm, definitely so let's get into that far lap then the phoenix is about to take off and the ball is going to destroy it so i really love that contrast of the takeoff of the phoenix and the evacuation of the enterprise it's it's a real good a nice juxtaposition there it's beautiful, isn't it? And yeah. um, the moment where it uh, launches out of the uh, out of the hangar is just incredible to see. Uh, and obviously, you've got Riker and Jordy on board there as well. Mm. And from that point, you get the magnificent moment of the soundtrack where Cochrane is panicking, going, "Oh no, I've forgotten it! I've forgotten it! It's <laughs> important! I need it! I need it!" And he, what? What? What have you forgotten? He pulls out this tiny little disc, plays it, and suddenly we've got magic carpet ride, which sets the whole scene off brilliantly. It does. Yeah, it's great. And mm. uh, that's that's really fun. And I love that Geordie and Riker, they're, they're fans, aren't they? They're, they're the fans watching mm. Cochrane do do this big event. It's like making history. It, it's it's great because you, you are invested on, on, on what they're feeling as much as, as you as a fan of yourself as well. Yeah. And uh the other thing about those scenes before you get to the confrontation with the Borg Queen is the Worf. And you've had Worf threaten to kill Picard. And then there's that, that, that lovely scene where he's it when Picard calls him the bravest man he's ever, ever known. It's, it's a it's a lovely kind of combination of... I think it's the last scene with Worf actually in the movie actually because he's not there at the end. Yeah. And probably understandably so. So it's a lovely scene with Worf and Picard that kind of comes full circle. And uh, yeah. that's a real, real nice moment. Yeah. Do you know actually with Worf, they use the Klingon theme from the Star Trek Kirk movies every time Worf on screen. Every time he's on there, you da 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 da. That's that's that piece of music. Actually, plays every single time you see Worf. They 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 put it into the soundtrack, which is which is. I great. hadn't noticed that. I'm gonna have to go back yeah. and look at that. Gonna have to watch the movie again, aren't yeah. you? <laughs> oh well, another excuse to go watch it again. <laughs> Absolutely, you know, not we ever need to watch First Contact. So, uh, so yeah, what do you think of that kind of final confrontation with Picard and the Borg Queen and Data's betrayal there? You genuinely think for a moment that Data's been turned mm. because he's got that. Yeah, he's got the skin on his face. He's got the skin on his arm, and you get that chilling moment where he says, "Resistance is futile," or "Resistance is mm. futile." I think he says, yeah. <laughs> and you think. He has this. He's 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 been turned. He's gone over. And then, of course, he's data. He's the good guy that we know. Pulls yeah. the gas. Uh, pulls the the green, uh, gassy stuff. I've forgotten what it was. Turns the Borg Queen into the T eight hundred. Yes, I thought Terminator moment very yeah. much so. And the horrifying moment where she lunges out and grabs Picard. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it's. It, it is a fantastic finale to a fantastic film. It is. It's a real, real exciting mm. climax. The, uh, the when Data fires those quantum torpedoes and they go towards the Phoenix. Yes. You, you, for a second, you know, it's not. He's surely he's not going to destroy the Phoenix. But how is it not going to destroy the Phoenix at the same time? Because you do believe for those minute or two that he yeah. has betrayed them, and is that then when they just go past the Phoenix, and he, and he, and he obviously Duvall is a good guy, it's a, it's a real kind of triumphant moment, and uh, punch the air, yeah, a real thrilling final escape as the Borg Queen goes after Picard, yeah. It's also nice that he gets to work out his trauma when he, when he snaps the neck of the headpiece of the Borg Queen mm -hmm. at the end, and essentially puts her to sleep for good, so it's it's a nice kind of way of being able to physically 
work out his trauma on the Borg Queen, who is really responsible for everything that was inflicted upon him. Yeah, because obviously Picard asks him as well, and says, um, did you even think about her offer? And he says something like, oh, I mm. thought about it for point something of a second. Uh, 0.68 seconds. 0.68 seconds. Which is seconds. a lifetime for data, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the weird thing is, for me, I thought for an android, that's probably quite a while that he was thinking about well, that. Well, he said, yeah. yeah and he, he then says, yeah. It is a lot for, for an android, it's a lifetime, yeah. And yeah. You, uh, which I guess plays into the idea you, you almost think for a second he has, well, for, not for a second, for a couple of minutes you think Data has betrayed mm. Picard and joined the Borg Queen. So, yeah, it's a very well played. Because he has already done it in Descent. Mm. Um, he joined Law and the Borg in that episode before. So you kind of think he's been turned again. Very so. true, yeah. And, of course, with the Borg defeated, you get what the movie's all about, which is first contact. And do you think it could be anything other than the Vulcans arriving on Montana? It's the most famous race mm, in Star yeah. Trek. Uh, the only other thing I could have thought of would have been someone like the Andorians, yeah. but then it's... They're not as well known. Exactly. Your average cinema goer isn't going to really know who the Andorians are. They're going to know who the Vulcans yeah, are Spock because is, yeah. they've seen Spock. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's a lovely... And I, and I love the Vulcan ship as well. It's such a cool design. That's a planner half. It's gorgeous. Yes. Yes. No, it's a, it's a real lovely kind of foul scene and the Picard crew. Very close encounters as well. Yeah, very much so, with yeah. With the moment where the ramp comes down. Yeah, that, very much yeah. so, yeah. It's, it's a real nice kind of foul scene to end on and uh, Picard is goodbye is very, very sweet and then the crew beaming up and uh, you're, Picard's make it so, the iconic line there from Star Trek Next Generation and then back to the Vulcans and Cochrane and of course rock and roll because what else would it be? <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, uh, Cochrane guns them down. Oh, wait, no, that's an Enterprise episode. That's the Darkly. Well, that's a great. <laughs> See, I love that scene of Mirror Darkly. It's I watched Mirror Darkly a few months ago. So when I was watching this scene, I remembered the. Uh, and Cochrane mm. guns the Vulcans down and starts the movie universe. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real fun moment. Yeah. yeah. I think that comes to the end of our discussion on First Contact. Any closing thoughts uh, on the movie? Uh, well, I, I could. I could talk for hours about this film, in all honesty. Um, <laughs> there is so much stuff that we haven't even covered, but we, you know, we could we could make this podcast five hours long and we'd still be barely scratching the surface of Star Trek First Contact. Maybe we'll do an addendum trivia discussion for another <laughs> time. Maybe we'll do something on the Star Trek movies, maybe. That might be quite a good one in the future, so we can go back and all the things we haven't discussed on the individual movies we can do on a separate podcast. Or maybe we can schedule it for five years' time, Joe. <laughs> or a First Contact <laughs> Part 2 podcast further down the line as well. Quite possibly. Yeah. I think there's enough here that we could do that we again. Can't, so, we can't uh, call it Second Contact because people will be tuning in thinking they're going to listen to a Lower Decks podcast. Lower Decks, absolutely. Yeah. So that is our part one <laughs> discussion of first contact next time i'll be taking a month off and you'll be having another guest on the podcast so what are you going to be discussing next month jeff yeah um i've got a guest on with me uh we'll be talking well i'll be talking to dan decker often known as the commodore uh on star trek twitter he's the host of a podcast where he basically invites his guests on to join him for a bourbon and talk about a movie I've decided to offer the invite to talk about one of his favourite Star Trek The Next Generation episodes. And uh, as a result, myself and Dan are going to be talking about A Fistful of Datas. Oh, fun episode, that one. I'm looking forward to listening to it. 
I'm looking forward to doing okay. it. <laughs> in the meantime, where can we find you online, Jeff, if we want to talk more Star Trek The Next Generation with you? I am on Twitter, I at NCC underscore one seven Formula One. Fab. And you can find me at Twitter at Baz Greenland and on the We Made This Network where I'm involved in several more podcasts. And if you want to know more about the show, check out our Twitter, Instagram, Facebook pages by searching Beyond Farpoint. And please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts too. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Let's see what's out there. Engage. This show is brought to you by Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Sweet Media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Blast Shield, a Star Trek Lower Decks podcast. I think we all thought Ransom was going to go into that fight scene, thinking that it was game over before it even started and he was going to lose. But I think the moment he rips his uniform off, (laughs) which is hard anyway to rip a shirt, but to rip an actual like jacket like that, Mm. pretty impressive. And then he had like about, I don't know, I think it was like 62 abs. He just looked ripped and then he was just like you know a little bit of this yeah a little bit of that i was just gonna say it was the way that he also narrated it it was just perfect it was great ransom definitely went to the school of kirk foo ransom foo maybe we should be calling it loading holosuite preview program for random trek review a star trek review podcast yeah the one you mentioned with dr crusher is hilarious because it gets down to her and captain picard and so it's like they have this giant galaxy class ship and there's just the two of them and he acts like it's a normal thing and it's just absolutely ridiculous right two people on that giant starship and there's even the point where where she says computer how many personnel would it take to run this ship and they're like 832 or something and picard's like oh yeah that is kind of weird i guess (laughs) i thought we were just doing it the two of us you know like that was pretty funny Computer, deactivate Holosuite.